Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. We're presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app today and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. I'm Dan Levitard, and I like talking to authors about things that they have poured all of their passions into. I always enjoy talking to this guy, even though I'm going to ask him right now, probably for the second time, whether he pronounces his name Klosterman or Klosterman, even though I've been reading him for 20 years or so. Well, you know, Dan, it is Klosterman, but there's no way for you to know that. There is no umlaut over my name. It looks like Klosterman. I wouldn't even correct you if you didn't bring it up. You know, I got an eight-year-old kid. He now has told me he goes by Klosterman. He's giving up on trying to tell people how to pronounce our name, which at first was kind of alarming to me, but then I was like, actually, he's smart. That makes more sense. I should have done that 25 years ago. Okay, so thank you for not making me feel stupid. You sometimes do when you write, because for a long time now, you have been writing pop culture better than most people that I have read on pop culture. In your new book, The 90s, I can't believe, Chuck, that we are now old enough that the area or the time period that I imagine that you did a lot of growing and loved what pop culture was, that now passes for both history and nostalgia, that all around us pop culture is taking the 90s and mining it as retrospective, as if it was a million years ago, like you're an archaeologist. It is a bit strange. That's actually, you're not trying to, to kind of offer a criticism there, but that actually might inadvertently be one. I mean, when you think about like Delver, David Helberstamp's the 50s, that came out in the 90s. And even then there was this thinking that, is he really, is this really history yet, you know? So like the fact that, uh, you know, a huge chunk of the people reading this book vividly remember it, um, that is a little curious. It does seem to suggest that culture has accelerated in a way that uh, is just making our experience with time different. Too fast. My experience with time during the pandemic is different and everything feels like that it's been accelerated, including my mortality and our mortality. So as you decide to write this book, how do you make the choice? Because you make interesting and unusual choices to pour years of your life into. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I guess when I started doing it, I wasn't sure, like, uh, like, am I, do I kind of have the skill set to do this kind of book? Because I could certainly write about the popular culture from the past, but you, it can't just be that, you know, it, it had to be more. So I started writing about like, the 1992 election and things of that nature. And then when I felt, well, this is working out okay, then I can kind of build out and do the rest. I, I mean, yeah, I would guess that this is, you know, this is no brilliant insight, but it wasn't that long ago the 90s were happening, but it does feel distant 
particularly if you talk about events from the first half of that decade, they really seem far, you know? But didn't you cover this in Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs? Like, how is this going to be different? You lived the 90s. You wrote about this while yeah. you were in it. Well, you know, when Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs came out, you know, that was 2003, you know, so I was writing that a lot in 2001 and 2002. That was, in many ways, a book about the 90s, but it was about my experience with the 90s. Like everything in that book is kind of pushed through the prism of things that happened to me directly or things that were of interest to me in specific, uh, where this book is different. I mean, it's like a it's more detached and I hopefully more objective. I mean, I it's it, it, I think that if someone would read this book, they would have actually very little sense of what I'm like as a person. Whereas if they had read Sex, Drugs and Cocoa Puffs, they would almost know too much about what I was like when I was 28. You know. And what are you trying to tackle here? What do you want people to know about the 90s? Why does this period stimulate you so? I think in a sense, I'm, I've just always been interested in books like this, like books that sort of frame a time period, either just, you know, on the calendar or, or you know, bookended by events um, and kind of give a sense of like what the texture of the time was like to live through it. I also think that, you know, the 90s were the last decade of the 20th century, but I think in some ways it might be the last decade that there will ever be, at least in the way we used to define it. Obviously, there'll be these 10 year chunks of time. But this idea that there is an era where it has kind of these kind of immutable shared characteristics that even people who didn't engage with them, even people who lived outside of them were aware of and kind of almost forced to understand because of the monoculture. I think that that is probably the end of that period, you know? And uh, so, so that was part of it. Um, I, I, I was thinking a lot about just the way the internet has changed life in the 21st century and how that period just before that shift really happened is kind of going to be lost or more probably more likely misremembered on purpose that the a lot of the things that we think about the world now will be projected back onto the past as if they were happening at the time and i i was just trying to do something that it would be like, well, this is how it actually was, or how at least I think it actually was. And how was that? Explain to us how this is going to be changed and distorted through time and how history will remember incorrectly a time that you lived, even though you yourself can be accused of not understanding what you were living while you were living it because there were so much sex, drugs, and cocoa puffs in it. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean... Okay. Well, first of all, like things like the internet, right? There's probably going to be a time in the future where if someone looks back on the nineties from a, you know, an even an either greater distance where the only thing that they might conclude that really mattered about that period was the advent of the internet, that that was that, that, that this is sort of like the foundation of this thing that now is so immersive and kind of, kind of controls all our lives or whatever. Um, and, you know, the internet did start in the 90s, but it had absolutely no relationship to the way we use it now and the way we think about it now. Um, so I was like, well, how do I kind of describe the internet without uh, pretending as if the way we view, say, social media was the way it always was? Because like, if you if you asked your listeners, for example, to like 
uh, ask them, like, what are the things about the Internet that are good and what are the things about the Internet that are bad, particularly in that second category? They're going to say things like about like the polarization of politics, that it kind of alienates people, sometimes from themselves, even while they're connecting with people, that um, it sort of accelerates the news cycle, that uh, uh, it, it makes kids grow up too fast, all of these things. And yet what they're really discussing exclusively are ideas that are part of social media, which did not exist in the 90s. The Internet of the 90s was a completely different deal. Like nobody would complain that it's too easy to get driving directions now or like it's it's like it's too easy to find like a good recipe for like chicken parmesan or whatever those but that's in the early days of the internet that's kind of what it was like it was like this tool that made things that weren't that difficult slightly easier like i don't know running your fantasy football team or whatever um but i think we've we've come to this idea that we're living almost in this perpetual sense of now which is how we feel about things now is how we always felt um and i think going forward there's going to be a lot of writing about the 90s from that mindset and I, I just I thought, well, some I'm going to just try to almost do like the foundational text that these later works can disagree with. Yeah, I want to cover all the stuff that you regard as landmarks from the 90s. But just give me all your thoughts on the Internet, because I imagine that that would be quite the unspooling. Well, you know, sometimes that when you, you read a book like this, so people ask me random questions. And one question that I've got to ask like three different times now are people who are who ask me essentially a version of this question. Would you give up the Internet to exist in the 90s in perpetuity? And I think they always think I'm going to say yes. But the actual answer is no. Like, I, I would not want to go back and, and, and live forever in the way the world was in the 90s. But that said, there were certain upsides, I think, to uh, people's autonomy and individual happiness. I mean, if there's one kind of theme in this book that just maybe I just hit too many times over and over again, is that the world seemed smaller without the Internet in a lot of ways, in the sense that you had the ability to kind of be separate from the world. And there was it was not viewed as being uh, like morally problematic or, or or philosophically troubling it's like you, you could sort of be separate from the world and the internet kind of forces the opposite of that the internet almost demands engagement with people outside of yourself even though we think of the person like you know like the cliche is always like the person alone in their basement like you know looking at web pages or whatever in truth it's the opposite it's like the internet is forcing society to sort of um uh, constantly engage with itself um and in this time prior to that, it was still sort of an optional thing. I mean, if you look at, say, 1995, that's like when Amazon is starting, Craigslist is starting, a lot of things uh, that are that are kind of become like the, the foundation of what the Internet is now are starting to happen then. It was still very easy for someone to be like, I don't like putting my credit card on the Internet. I'm not going to do that. Or it's like, you know, it's like I, you would see it maybe a person older than us, they would see it as something that they would read about in Newsweek or Time or in the newspaper and not have to be involved with at all. Then for people who were born after that, people who were born into the 90s or born in the 21st century, the idea of sort of life without it is sort of like us trying to imagine life without television. It's almost like a separate reality. It's really only people our age, a little bit older and a little bit younger, who completely remember both worlds. The way the world was in 1990 when almost no one had a 
email account. And then the world of 2000 where everything had shifted. And I think that that makes a lot of the things from this period kind of like amazing and confounding, but specifically to us, to, to, to different people, it might just seem like, well, that's just exposition. You know? I don't long for the ignorance is bliss of my life being smaller in the 90s. But I do think I can say this and not have you dispute it. The Internet has made us unhappier. I would agree with that. Seeing all of these things that were previously unseen, you can't unsee them. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a, a weird problem. It's like consciousness makes people unhappy. If your entire life, if your entire sense of reality was the hundred people closest to you, your entire self-worth and your view of yourself would be compared to those hundred people. And the difference probably wouldn't be that great. Even at the high end or the low end, the polls would even be more similar. As we sort of accelerate media, first with radio, newspapers, then with television, and now with the internet, People are constantly seeing other experiences and forcing themselves to slot their own reality into this kind of pyramid. Um, and that does make people less happy because you start viewing every experience you have only in comparison to other experiences as opposed to the experience itself. And that's like when we think of the Internet, we don't think of it that way. We don't say like, well, you know, the main thing the Internet does is give us the chance to experience alternative realities. But that's what it is. That is in practice what it's doing. And that probably does make people significantly less happy. Now, there is a sliver of the populace where the, the opposite would be true. People who would have felt exceedingly isolated or shut out or maybe even fearful of like the kind of the tangible world can now sort of have a different kind of life where it's all coming through a monitor and it's all just kind of what they choose to, to allow to come back to them. To that person, the idea that the world is worse because of the internet might seem insane. Um, so, you know, but I think for most people, the opposite experience is true. And it's very confusing because it's like, why do uh, we feel alienated from this device that we're using because we want it. Like we're, 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 we're almost embracing the thing, fully aware that it's doing this to our mind and our kind of emotional state. What do you regard as the healthiest relationship to have with the internet baked into it, the idea that you're getting addicted to something that has poison in it? Well, you know, it, it, I suppose it's not that unlike the way people would have discussed television in the 50s and 60s. And they would have said then it's like, well, you know, it has this potential to let us see sporting events and presidential election coverage, and news. And stuff. It has all this utility, but it's also sort of a way um, to escape from what what life is supposed to be like so now you apply that to the internet and this is all accelerated right so if you look at it as a tool which i think most people would say you should you should you should see the internet as a tool for these things um it's funny to say this but it's a little bit like what ted kaczynski was arguing which is that we can't really differentiate between good technology and bad technology we feel like we do because we can look at certain technologies and say well that's positive for the world you know this heart monitor or whatever we can look at bad technology um you know like a nintendo switch or whatever you want whatever you want to argue and you can say well one's good and one is bad but in reality he says that they're kind of the same that they both kind of create this this that, that that their value or their lack of value is intertwined with each other and that creates this kind of 
glass ceiling of how happy we can be that we don't even realize. Like, it seems strange to talk about the Unabomber and be like, well, this is a really valuable point. I mean, he's obviously a lunatic, but his understanding of the Internet is pretty amazing considering he never used it. I mean, he was like living in a cabin out in Montana. It's like he didn't he didn't have any access to this stuff. But yet his description of its problems uh, are, are weirdly prescient. What an odd detour for yeah. you to take. As I ask you, what uh, do I need to do to have a healthy relationship with something that can addict <laughs> me to poison? And you're yeah. like, listen to the Unabomber. Just, you, you, I mean, honestly, yeah. honestly, Chuck, like I just presented you as like a thinker for our times. And look at what you just did to me. Well, I, I think I'm, I'm leading you to a, a new kind of life. I think that, you know, you're in Miami. Maybe you need to go the exact opposite. You know, maybe Idaho, somewhere to get away from this world. You know, I think that I can have a I don't want to make this Internet obsessed because there are other things that happened in the 90s. But there is nothing that changed the world more. Right. Not Amazon, not anything, not any of your landmarks in the 90s, as you just said, are any bigger than that one. Well, I mean, Amazon's an extension of the Internet, though. That's a lot. I mean, a lot of these things that we talk about, these landmark events, um, they still are connected back to this change in technology, the way music has changed, the way film has changed, the way politics have changed. I mean, that's why we use the Internet sort of as almost the explanation of everything. I mean, one thing I write about in the book is like the idea of doxing. OK, so doxing now is considered almost like a crime on to itself. Well, it is if like if you were to publicize you know, my home address and all this stuff about me, it would like you would be seen as like almost committing a, an act of like violence. And yet at the beginning of that decade, most people doxed themselves. Like you, there was a phone book with your name and your phone number and your address in there. You had to pay money not to have it in there. You had to pay extra not to have that information made available. So like what happened between say 1989, where everybody wants this information in public to 2001, where it is seen as almost like a crime. And it's like something had to change the way that person viewed their life. And the only thing that really makes sense is the internet. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You say it has changed music. You say it has changed politics. How? 
Well, I mean, it changed music by sort of changing the value of music. The, 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 like music was never a pure commodity, right? It was never something that only existed to be bought and sold. But our framework for understanding pop and rock music and country music and hip hop and all these things from say 1950 up until the late 90s was based around the idea that like music was packaged in an album. It cost a certain amount of dollars if you you had a limited amount of money and space that you could have. So it created these kind of subcultures within music. Um, kids who are goth kids or metal kids or disco people or whatever, you know, it's like you, you would buy a collection of things that were tied together and then you would almost join the subgroup that emerged from that. When the internet, Napster, and all these things sort of changed the way music was uh, distributed without really changing the way it was made at all, um, it moved us back to this idea where individual songs mattered more than albums. And then it was like there was no necessity to sort of join any kind of subculture or enter into a subculture because you could have 400 songs instantly on your computer that had no relationship outside of the fact that you like them. That in some ways really improved people's experience with music. I think many people, most people would say like they'd rather have Spotify than like their album collection because Spotify is limitless and it doesn't, they can get whatever they want, you know, instantly. And yet their relationship to music weakened because its availability and its lack of scarcity made it feel less valuable. So the way people think about music has changed because of the internet, even though they still like it in the same way. It's not like music's less popular. It just means something different. Politically now, uh, that's that's has more to do with the fact that it is easier than ever for people to exist in their own silo. And in fact, it's almost expected that that's how it will be. Like it is, it is, uh, uh, interesting to me over how in the last 10 to 15 years, how pejorative the idea of being a centrist has become or somebody who, uh, uh, looks at things and says like, well, I'm just sort of interested in the pragmatic uh, manifestation of this. It's like, it's not really a moral thing to me. I'm trying to figure out like how those work. That's like, there, there's a real anger toward that worldview where in the 90s that was an incredibly common way to perceive things it was not uh, it was not strange to sort of follow politics almost like you were following sports or almost like you were following music because the stakes seemed lower you know i mean that, that and that's i mean that's maybe in some ways when when people feel like uh, you know a longing for the 90s in some abstract way it's strange to admit it, but what it, they may be longing for was just a period of time where it seemed less intense and the stakes seemed lower. Yeah. You would not argue that the nineties were better than now. Right. And you, but you might argue that music was better before now. Uh, well, it's interesting. Would I not argue the nineties were better than now? I mean, this is a pretty bad time in, in us history, I would say. So I would say that in a large sense, the 90s probably were a better time. I wouldn't want to go back there. I wouldn't want to go back in time. You might be able to find periods of time going back and back further and further where you could say, well, in truth, that was maybe a better time to be alive. But once you're used to modernity, you just can't go back. I mean, like you can't you can't go back to a time before air conditioning once you grew up with air conditioning. It's just impossible. And that applies to all technology, basically. Was music better in the 90s? Um that's always kind of a it's kind of a, a two-sided question because what you're really asking is like was the music coming out in the 90s superior to the music coming out now and that's a subjective thing the objective answer though is all the music from the 90s still exists 
So in some ways, music can't really get worse because we're only adding to the catalog. This idea that somehow that when you're talking about when was music good, you're only kind of dealing with the music that came out that year. That doesn't reflect anyone's experience with music. People in 1976 were still listening to the Beatles. They'd been broken up for six years. You can still listen to the Beatles now. It's never going to go away. So it, it's hard to make these, these value judgments on like, was this period better than this period? They were different periods though. And it's the way that culture is experienced, I think that, is what we're talking about. Like, was it more fun to be a music fan in the early nineties than a music fan now? And well, being says someone who experienced both it, 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 the, the, the feeling is that somehow it was more significant in the early nineties, even though I have to fight with the obstacle that it, that makes no sense to say that because what I'm, what I'm literally saying is I preferred having less options than I do now. And I prefer, so I preferred um, sort of being almost forced in to a, a subculture based on uh, what my taste happened to be at the time. You know, like if, if I was into hair metal in the eighties, I was that kind of person. If I was into alternative music in 93, I was that kind of person. Those things don't exist anymore. So it'd be really weird to say like, well, I, I wish I could go back to this period where uh, I have, you know, had less freedom. Um, but like I said, having experienced both I understand why that was desirable because in some ways this idea of having limitless agency um, is not really uh, the path toward comfort. It's actually a path toward discomfort. A guy used to write about this, how it's like, you know, uh, if you go into say like an American uh, drugstore, I think it was a British guy talking about this, like an American drugstore or like at an American grocery store and you go to the toothpaste aisle and there might be like 40 different kinds of toothpaste. Um, that creates in some weird low level way, like this kind of kind of low level anxiety that we have, I have to make a choice about this too. Um, when in truth, your interest in toothpaste is probably very low. If there was only one or two options, it would be just the same as 40. Like, you know, and yet if you're outside of the store and I say to you, what would you prefer? 40 toothpaste in there or two? Everyone will say 40. It always seems better to have more choices than fewer. And yet when we're actually faced with it, it creates this sense that there is no part of my life that is simple and straightforward. Everything is a matter of weighing this against that. And that is like, I mean, this is why when people talk about the acceleration of culture, this is what they're talking about. The idea that things are getting faster and improving and it's making it worse for the user. You, know? you mentioned, though, the idea that, well, things are pretty bad now. And yes, uh, empirically and in a lot of different ways, of course, the, the things that are upon us now seem dark and foreboding and promise a real really dark future. However, all of these things were there before, Chuck. We just didn't see them. It's not like they weren't there in politics and everywhere else. They were just hidden because we didn't have access to the silos and as much information as now. It was just as bad. It just wasn't as obviously overt in front of our eyes in a way that can't be unseen. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated deal what you're saying, though, because, okay, so by seeing it now, by having this ability to see more things like this, okay? Um, you, what you're saying is that it's not really changing what the reality was. Uh, the reality was kind of static. And then we were, at one point we were able to not see it. And at another point we're forced to, and that sort of changes our opinion on these things. I guess one question would be, is that like, um, 
when you see other people's experiences, when you see these things that we're talking about, these, okay, well, I, actually, I want to get back to what you said. You said like these things in politics were always there. These things in politics, what do you mean by that? What do you kind of say? Well, the, one of the things I was thinking about technologically is, for example, the experience that minorities have had with the police is something that now we have the technology to see. But it's not like it wasn't being sung about by NWA and straight out of Compton. Like it was in the music, it was in the culture, but it was in a culture and it transferred to white people just commercially through the music, but we needed the video in order to see like, oh my God, what great divisions they are in the country between how white people and minorities view, for example, the police. And all those things have been brought in front of us now in politics in a way that's a lot more overt than it's ever been. The dog whistles are gone. It's now a foghorn. And now the, the political party that we're talking about is basically using these things to show us yeah, the divisions have always been there. We just profited off them more quietly before. I mean, it's it's a it's an interesting deal. I mean, like you, I mean, you've probably done this. Like you can go on the Washington Post and they 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 track every person killed by a policeman in a given year. And they've done this now, I think, for five or six or seven years. And it's just like you know, and um, the number itself changes very little. I mean, it's almost nine hundred and fifty to a thousand fifty every year. Okay. And yet it feels like the problem is getting amplified. It feels like it's getting worse, right? Like, so the statistics say things have stayed pretty much the same, but it feels different. Okay. So now that feels different because of these things we're talking about, you know, the fact that every phone has a camera now and we can see these things. So do you have a better sense of reality because you believe something is becoming more and more central to the experience of living in America, even if the statistics say otherwise. In other words, is the ability to know the thing really changing anything about uh, how you should view it? You see what I'm saying? I do. I think that uh, this is a conversation that we can have for a lot longer, but we don't have that kind of time with you. Uh, so... Let's segue into what you regard as the other signature landmarks of the 90s. It's kind of become popular uh, to frame the 90s around the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the destruction of the Twin Towers. Uh, that has kind of become like the a historian's shorthand for doing that. But I don't use 1989 as the beginning of the 90s. Uh, I understand why somebody would pick that because it's just like a kind of a global meaningful event. But I was essentially writing about America. And in 1990, the year itself, it was sort of the 80s on autopilot. Many of the things that we associate with the 80s were still completely central in the 90s. I mean, like, you know, Twin Peaks was coming on and that was this kind of this revolutionary thing. But Cheers was still the most popular show. And Joe Montana was still the best player in the NFL. And people still shop for Christmas, like through the Sears catalog and like, bought, you know, you know, in 1991, though, uh, the release of Nirvana's Nevermind to me is sort of when the qualities that we associate, almost the caricatures of the 90s, kind of come to fruition. And that's when you start seeing this time period that kind of has these immutable values, this idea that the non-musical impact of Nirvana was very significant, much more so than the music itself. So I, I sort of see the release of that record as kind of the beginning of this and the beginning of what we talk about, kind of like the anecdotal 90s. Some of the other things I talk about are, are, are like, you know, the, the 92 election was a real key time in the sense that that the outcome of that election um, probably has had a, 
a domino effect on the way the country is constructed in a way that I think is probably still underrated. I think probably the role of H. Ross Perot in how the world is now uh, has to a degree been forgotten. Uh, and I think it's actually real central. Like so many things would have been different had he not been involved in that race. I also think it's um, pretty incredible that he got 19% of the vote of the popular vote. Uh, the idea that one out of five people wanted him to be president, I think reflects how different uh, the 90s actually were as opposed to the way we think about them. Um, and then, I mean, you know, listen, you know, moving through the, the, the book talks about different things, you know, things that I saw as important or, or things that I feel like I felt I had to talk about because they were important. I'm, I'm sure somebody else could say, well, why didn't you write about X or why did you uh, sort of exaggerate the importance of Zima beverages or whatever? And it's like, well, there is a to a degree. This is a subjective thing, too. Even though I'm trying to be objective, there's things that I think are more interesting than others. And I just tried to I tried to make choices. You know? How is it all different? The name of the book is the 90s, a book. It's available now. And I always enjoy talking to this guy. But just as one example, as we get you out of here, how is everything different in America if Ross Perot does not run and get 19 percent of the vote? Well, you know, there are statistics that like the statistical people will say, actually, nothing would be different because he got 19 percent of the vote. And if you look at exit polling, about 9.5 percent of the people who were exit polled said that they voted for Perot. But if he hadn't been running, they would have voted for Bush. And the other half said they would have voted for Clinton. So they would go like, well, it shouldn't have changed anything if maybe the only impact was that. Uh, it maybe lowered Clinton's take of the popular vote. And yet I, I kind of compare this to the two seasons that Michael Jordan didn't play in the NBA and play baseball in the sense that you could definitely argue that the Houston Rockets were going to win those years anyways. They had a lot of success against the Bulls. They were five and one against him uh, in the previous years. And yet no one actually thinks that. Nobody actually thinks those seasons sort of, um, you know, uh, unspool the way they do if Jordan is involved. And it's the same with this election. Even if you can statistically argue that Perot did not change the outcome, he altered the entire race, particularly since he had a much more adversarial relationship with Bush than he did with Clinton. So he was always going after Bush, mostly because of uh, his he was he had issues with the Gulf War, but then sort of later saw Bush's almost like an avatar for all the things that he saw going wrong with the country during the 80s. And this allowed Clinton to sort of be kind of a free, charismatic, young seeming person. He did not have to get into a kind of a dark, gritty race against Bush. He could seem much more optimistic than uh, you would normally expect kind of a pragmatic person to be. I mean, say, part of the reason that Clinton ran was that they just, the Democrats thought they had no chance against Bush. He seemed so popular in 1991, but it all falls apart, partially because of Perot, I think, and Clinton ends up being president. Now, if we go back and we imagine Clinton losing that election and having another four years of the first George Bush, many things about the country changes. For one thing, the Democratic Party probably has to completely reinvent itself. For another thing, there's no Republican revolution. There's no Newt Gingrich and all of these things because there's no one to kind of go after. So I think that in a weird way, in fact, maybe in an obvious way, uh, the 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 sort of polarized anger and the and the, the the bifurcation of the Republicans and the Democrats would be considerably less had Bush won again. And I think Bush would have won again had Perot not entered the race. Chuck, thank you, sir. Again, I will tell the audience it's very simply named the 90s, the book. 
That is one of the few times where you're going to be that kind of efficient with word usage. The 90s, a book is what I should have said instead of the book. But this is the book on the 90s. Chuck, thank you for being on with us. Thanks for having me on. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family-owned from the start, same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.